the moment I realized that I was going to have to have the quote unquote talk with my, my children actually happened before I ever had children. Um, it was shortly after the 2014 shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson. Um, and it was a moment for me when I realized that this is still something that is very prevalent in our society and something that I was going to have to address for better or for worse. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our first episode of the Unfiltered Real People, Real Conversations podcast with Ikesa HT. I will be your host for today. My name is Manette. I am so excited about our first episode. Our guest for today is Burton Patterson, who is the director of men's engagement with ICASA HT. So for this month, in honor of Black History Month, we have been reading virtually, of course, we have been reading Between the World and Me. And I just think that it's so incredible to have these conversations and so important um, to have these conversations. And so we wanted to sit down with Burton because of course he is a black male and also a black father. So we wanted to get his perspective um, about this book and also his role as a black male and a black father. So let's get into it. Welcome Burton and thank you for joining us for Thanks today's for having episode. Me. I'm super excited about this episode. I'm excited about it too. I've been looking forward to this for a while. So like I was saying to um, our listeners, we are reading this book this month called Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Mm -hmm. And it's such a powerful book. And he wrote this book actually to his son. Um, so it's almost like a storytelling book. And there's so many powerful quotes and powerful pieces. And it's incredible to see that this book that was written in 2015, shortly after the police officer that was responsible for the death of Michael Brown was exonerated of charges. Mm -hmm. We are still dealing with things like that in our present time. So Burson, can you talk a little bit um, about what comparisons you can draw between that time and now? Yeah, I think in many ways, our society is shifting. Um, it's, it's, it's moving in a better direction from it from where it was in 2014. Um, but as I always say, there's still so much work to be done um, because these things are still happening. Um, and I think one of the biggest differences between now and then is that now everything is televised, right? Like everything mm -hmm. is being captured and everything is being shown. Um, and then you have the 24 hour news cycle on things. Um, so we're inundated with these images and these stories and uh, for better or for worse, I think it has moved many black people in our country to um, to join movements, to speak up, to uh, to be activists in this movement, this Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and it's it's really galvanized uh, so many people in a way that I think 2014 was sort of a beginning towards that movement. And I mm -hmm. think over the last year and a half or so we've seen the culmination of all of that. We've seen the marches, we've seen the protests, we've seen people stand up and say enough is enough. Um, mm -hmm. We can't continue to live like this. So unfortunately we're still in a time where this is happening, where p police yeah. brutality against black people and black men is still at alarming rates. Um, but I think a lot of people are just fed up with it and they're not, mm -hmm. we're not accepting that anymore. Um, and for the first time in a very long time, it feels like it's almost okay to be black. Like it's almost okay yeah. to, to, to be a black person and not in the way that we're safe and that we're not going to be harmed, but in a way that for a very long time, black people have had to hide our blackness. We've had right. to hide behind a mask, hide behind a code. Um, and now it feels like we're getting to a place where in the black community, we're speaking up and we're supporting right. each other more. And we're, we're saying that it's okay for us to be black. It's okay for us to be in this space and be who we are and not water ourselves down um, to make someone else feel comfortable. Let's, I want to unpack that. Those are such great points. And I want to unpack that a little bit because for those of you who have not read the book, 
Coates stresses a lot on the black body um, and being in your black body and making yourself comfortable with knowing that you are you are mm-hmm. a being, a black being. And in talking to his son, that is one of the things he stresses to his son um, is that he has to, for lack of better words, make peace with his black body um, and the fact that there are struggles that he is going to have to go through because he is he is a black man. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, there's one page in the book specifically that he talks to his son about the fact that he will have to carry the struggles of others that aren't even his or have nothing, you know, don't have anything to do with mm-hmm. him, but for the mere fact that he is black. Um, so I want to unpack that with you. What does that mean to you being that you are a black man and you are also a black father? And, you know, you talked about we're starting to realize that it's okay to be black, but is it really okay to be black because we are punished, you know, for the color of our skin at no fault of our own. We carry um, stigmas that have been placed on us. And a lot of, you know, our listeners, I'm sure are familiar with the term that we say, you know, this country was built on the backs of slaves Mm -hmm. and that's such a literal term. Um, And so what, yeah, there's, there's a new awakening of black pride, but there's also this sense of, man, like, will it ever be okay though? Like, can I just raise my kids? Can I experience black joy? Can I just live in my body and know that it is okay? So let's unpack that. Talk, talk to me about that. What does that mean um, for you as a black man and also as a black father? Um, Really great questions. I think so many things from uh, from this book resonated with me, um, and I think reading it as a father and reading it um, before becoming a father, you know, your 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 perspectives on life are different once you become a parent. Um, sure. You look at things through a different lens. Uh, but speaking specifically about the black body, how that resonated with me. Um, is because I'm a large black man, similar to Ta-Nehisi Coates. He also is a, a very large black man. Um, and I think entering a space as a large black man, I am almost immediately perceived as a threat. Um, and mm-hmm. in that body, there's nothing that I can do. I, it doesn't matter how kind I am to someone. It doesn't matter um, how gentle I am with someone. Um, my physical appearance and the color of my skin combined, uh, I can be perceived as a threat. And that's very difficult in this world that we live in. Um, It's difficult to step outside of your home and know that people will see you on the street and think you are a threat. Um, When I'm a nonviolent person, very gentle, um, and try to be kind to everyone I come in contact with, people don't see that. People don't know that. They see your physical appearance. And unfortunately, in our country, because of the color of my skin, that's threatening. That's threatening for a lot of people. and that's, that's very difficult when he talks about the black body, saying that um, he had to come to grips with his body not necessarily belonging to him and people making statements like, do you know I could have you arrested? Um, and sort mm-hmm. of people wepo- weaponizing yeah. the police in that way and saying that that was a moment for him when he realized that his body was not his own, that someone could literally right. perceive him as a threat, call the police, and now that's their weapon to, to harm him to harm him in whatever way they see fit. Um, and that's scary. It's, it's, it's a terrifying thing to have to realize for yourself. And it's a terrifying conversation to have to have to have, to have with a child, specifically with a son. Right. Um, and I recall that after, um, after Black Lives Matter movements really reached their, their pinnacle over this past uh, year, um, I think it was Sesame Street had a special about racism um, Mm -hmm. to try and connect with children. Um, And I have a six-year-old son and a three-year-old daughter. um, And my wife and I wanted to be very intentional about our conversations with them surrounding race. um, Mm -hmm. Because that's a difficult conversation to have. This is before we even get to the quote-unquote talk about how you interact with police. This is strictly you are going to be treated a specific way in this country because you were born black. Um, 
and I'm, I'm getting emotional now talking about it and reliving that experience because in that moment I was trying to have that, that, that conversation with my son, just tears streaming down my face as I'm having this conversation. Mm-hmm. And he is very much the most gentle, uh, loving, empathetic child I've ever met. Um, and he just looks at me and he says, Daddy, why are you crying? And I mm. said, because I'm really sad that I have to have this conversation with you. Mm. I feel like I'm taking something away from you. Um, and in yeah. that moment, I felt like I was taking away his innocence. I felt yeah. like um, this isn't a conversation that we should have to have. This is not yeah. a moment that I should have to share with my, my six-year-old son. But unfortunately, it is. It's a conversation that a lot of people have to have with their children because we are treated differently because of the color of our skin. Um, and when I, when I mentioned earlier about being okay to be black, I meant more so in black circles with, with, with Mm -hmm. black allies and black people, um, where we are celebrating each other more and we're celebrating our blackness more. I don't necessarily think that that is being accepted more by society, but within that bubble, um, I feel like we're creating more of a safe, a safe space within that bubble. Um, and for better or for worse, that feels comforting that. Um, a sense of community is feels like it's coming from that. Um, and that's, like I said, that's a conversation that was very difficult at the time. Um, but, but having that talk with him um, in a way that most children sort of perceive things and, and deal with things, he said, okay, and sort of moved on. Um, mm, so he yeah. got it. He understood that people would treat him differently. He didn't really understand why he didn't understand the why behind it. And to be honest with you, many people don't understand the why behind it. Right. There's, there's Mm -hmm. year, there's hundreds of years of why behind it. Um, So having that conversation with him and having that conversation with my daughter was, uh, it was a tough moment for my wife and I, um, but I was glad that we were able to do it in the way that we were. And I was grateful that, um, we sort of have the the capacity to do so because I know a lot of people don't necessarily have the tools for that. Don't necessarily have the tools to have that conversation. Um, mm-hmm. And then that can perpetuate things further. If we don't have those conversations with our kids, if we don't teach them how to be safe, Absolutely. if we don't teach them that you need to be cautious in certain situations. Um, those are very important yeah. conversations in those moments. Absolutely. And I, it's so powerful just us having, just even having this conversation and having a platform to talk about these things. And when you said, you know, you felt like you were taking away his innocence, mm-hmm. that's such a powerful statement because as parents, you know, I, I'm a new mom and as parents, we want to protect our mm-hmm. children, right? We want to keep them safe forever. We don't want to taint them and we want to make sure that they're always safe and loved, but the reality is that's not the world we live exactly. in. And so um, there's a part in the book, there's actually two parts I want to get to where he he talks about dreamers and having this conversation with you. It reminds me of that section of the book where he basically talks about there, there are those people who are dreamers in this world that filled themselves with lofty ideas and um i forgot the exact term he 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 put it in but basically some he said um the dream smells like peppermint but tastes like strawberry yes, shortcake yes, I remember that. you know um yeah and he said that dreamers would rather live white than free you know and it's so powerful because you fill up your 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 idea and your mind with this notion that it will be okay and everything is going to be okay. And my kid isn't going to have to go through that, but those are lofty Mm -hmm. dreams and you have to prepare your child for the real world a lot sooner than you ever Mm -hmm. imagined. And so, yeah, as a parent, there is this sense that, man, am I taking their innocence away by having to protect them by having this conversation? Because it is this conversation and through their struggles that is going to protect them. And in his book, I want to read um, just a short excerpt from this book because this, everything you said was so powerful and I want us to talk about it. Um, But there's the first part of his book where his son learns um, that the killers of Michael Brown would go free. 
And he says, um, that was the week he's talking to his son. He says, that was the week you learned that the killers of Michael Brown would go free. The men who had left his body in the street, like some awesome declaration of their inviolable power would never be punished. It was not my expectation that anyone would ever be punished, but you were young and still believed. You stayed up till 11 p.m. that night, waiting for the announcement of an indictment. And when instead it was announced that there was none, you said, I've got to go. And you went into your room and I heard you crying. I came in five minutes after, but I didn't hug you and I didn't come comfort you because I thought it would be wrong to comfort you. I did not tell you that it would be okay because I had never believed it would be okay. What I told you is what your grandparents tried to tell me, that this is your country, that this is your world, that this is your body, and you must find some way to live within the all of it. I tell you now that the question of how one should live within a black body, within a country lost in the dream is the question of my life and the pursuit of this question I have found ultimately answers itself. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. Wow. As a parent, not being able to comfort your child because that's not reality. Yeah. And flash forward to present day we witnessed the same thing with brianna's yep. murder and that's that's such a powerful excerpt in so many ways yeah. um, because you could literally break that down line by line and that's an entire class Absolutely. Um, but i think the pursuit of trying to live in all of that is sort of the black american dream right like that's the dream that yeah. we have not the white picket fences and the six-figure salary, right. Um, right. The, the ability to live comfortably in our bodies in the society. And that's, it's sad when you think about it at its core, that mm -hmm. that's what we're striving Absolutely. for. We're striving for safety. We're striving for uh, comfortability. Um, I mean, we were all sitting in our homes hoping that there would be justice for right? our sister. But a white man's window was more important than our yeah. life. And it's not just when it happens to one, it happens to all of us. Yeah. And the, 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 and yet knowing that like, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I expected it, but it's still disappointing to get to that point in your life where you're no longer surprised. Yeah. And I think that's a difficult place to be too, because when you're no longer surprised, I think it's a fine line between that and be becoming desensitized to it. Um, right. And, you know, that's, that, that's a tough place to be. I think in the comforting aspect of wanting, wanting to comfort his child, but knowing that he might not be able to, or maybe it's not the best idea. Um, the, the pain in that, the pain in just reading that mm -hmm. and knowing that your child is sitting here struggling with something and what, there's nothing for you to tell them. I mean, what can you, what can you say? It's been happening for hundreds right. of years. It's going to continue to happen. Um, and that's when the talk that you have with them is just, mm -hmm. it's, it's void of comfort. There's no comfort in that. Right. It's, it's strictly procedural. It's, these are the things you do to keep yourself safe. Um, right. And that's. So let's get into that. Let's get into yeah. the talk. Let's get into the code that we live by. What is the code we live by? What is the talk? I imagine it's, it, it varies for different people, but at the core of it, it has the same values. It's ways to interact with uh, specifically police, but with everyone as a black person. Um, just a little bit about me. I was born and raised on the south side of Chicago. Um, we lived in some really great neighborhoods and we lived in some not so great neighborhoods that were um, filled with a lot of violence and um, a lot of activities that my mom worked really, really hard to, to keep us away from, um, kept us involved in a myriad of activities. So we weren't involved in neighborhood activities. Um, she shielded us from that. And without her shielding us from that, it would have been very easy for me, my brother or my sister to become involved in a life that was surrounding us. That was just a part of our community. Um, so I, I thank her for that. I thank her for shielding us from that. Uh, because I saw people within my neighborhood who became 
a part of violence and crime and um, sort of this, this cyclical nature of this is what you're born into, this is what you're a part of. I saw that. I saw what it looked like. And having had that background and where I grew up, my mom had the conversation with me several times when I began driving. Um, it usually happens around the time a black child gets their, their driver's license. Um, and I very much had an afro when I was in high school. It's a, it's a funny thought. <laughs> uh, I had an afro. I had like the, yeah. the black power fist pick with the long metal. Um, oh, wow. Uh, whatever they're called, the, the sticks on the pick. Um, mm-hmm. And I used to like to put that in the back of my hair because I thought it was cool because that was a part of the culture. That was a part of what took place back then. And my mom said to me, don't ever wear that in your head when you're driving a car. Don't ever wear that in, on, in mm. your head when you're in public. Don't wear a do-rag when you're driving a car. Don't wear a hoodie. Don't wear a baseball hat. Don't have anything on your head at all. Make sure that yeah. um, anytime a police pulls you over, that your hands are all, always seen. Make sure that you greet them with, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, and that you're very respectful. Um, make sure that mm. your music is turned down low. Uh, make sure that you always have all the light bulbs on your car uh, functioning so they don't have a reason to pull you over and ultimately sort of going through this laundry list of things that you need to do to make sure that you're in a safe space. And that code is something that you need to live by because you're not only putting yourself in harm if you go outside of that code, but potentially someone else that you're with, you're putting them in danger as well because this is a code that we have to live by. We have to make ourselves as non-threatening as possible. And all of those things that I'm listing are, are part of ways that people would see black culture as threatening. If I walked up to someone with right. a pick in my hair, I'm, oh, I'm immediately, I'm a threat. Like, this is a thug. This is, this is a person who's a gangbanger mm. and they're going to hurt me. They're going to steal from me right. because I have a pick in my hair. Um, so a difficult conversation to have, but one that I think many black parents have to have with their children that's been happening for decades, mm-hmm. for hundreds of years. This conversation yeah. has continued in lives about you have to do certain things to keep yourself safe. And right. it's and having conversations with some of my white friends who are parents and a conversation that they will mm. never have to have with their children. Um, and many of them acknowledge that. that. They're like, that's my privilege as a white person is that I never have to talk to my child about when a police right. officer pulls you over do X, Y, Z to make sure that you're safe. Um, And of course you want to be respectful to everyone, not only law enforcement, but everyone. And I think it's been, it's seen played out over the the past several years of, of people of non-color being disrespectful towards police, being overtly aggressive towards police and being treated very differently than a black person, a person of color. And that's what we see. And that's what we live is that we can't behave that way. We can't go outside the right. I can't question what a police officer says to me if I get pulled over. That's not an mm-hmm. ability that I have. And that's, that's sort of where the talk stems from, is that you may see your friends interact with police officers or with authority figures in a specific way, but that's not your code. That's not how you behave. That's not, that's not what you do. You don't question authority. You can't question authority in those moments. And hopefully we can get to a point where we're past that, where we're past having that conversation. But right now in today's society, that is still very prevalent. That's still a big piece of it. Wow. And I think it comes it comes with code switching too. I I often oh I often absolutely. Laugh that, um, I have a very specific playlist on my Spotify for if I get pulled over. It's the pulled over playlist. It's mm, it's literally. Wow littered with like country christian rock uh classical music i'm i can't get pulled over and and be listening to a rap song because then that further Mm. that further marginalizes me that further makes me a threat because now i'm filling that stereotype now i'm a black man listening Mm. to rap music he must be a threat instantly a police officer might might have their guard must be a threat like okay right i'm walking up to a car that has rap music playing Versus I'm walking up to a car that has classical music playing. It's just mm. things like that we have to think about. We have to actively think about it. And even in a professional Absolutely. setting, the way, we be- the way we behave, the way we speak, the way mm-hmm. we dress. And it, it always is in my, 
the forefront of my mind that any space I enter, I need to be less black. And that's something that I live yeah. with every day. And what I referenced mm-hmm. earlier with it, it being more okay to be black, I feel more comfortable, I should say. I feel more comfortable being black over the last few years um, in spaces where I would try to be less black, to water myself down, to be perceived as less of a threat, um, to sort of try and fit in with that that mainstream um, a culture in that way. When I've embraced it over the past few years, the older I get, the more I educate myself, the more comfortable I feel in my skin, the more comfortable I feel being black. But it took a very long time to get to that point. It took a lot of work. Mm. It took a lot of intentionality to get to that point because we have all of these things in our society built up for us to fail. Yeah. I mean, the system is literally built for Mm -hmm. us to fail. There's no, it doesn't matter how accomplished we get, we will always be Mm -hmm. the lesser. And going back to the the code switching part, it's the people that I grew up in, the rough neighborhoods that I lived in, it's wanting to interact with them and play basketball with them and hang out with them. But speaking properly, I wasn't black enough. Like, why do you talk so good? Mm. Why, why, why is your speech? Why, why do you sound like Mm. that? Um, So I think they're, it's so funny you say that. I remember in high school, um, I went to a, I mean, there were there were black kids in my high school, but predominantly a white um, high school. And I lived in the area. I lived within the township. And I recall several times, um, you know, my, my mm-hmm. mom used to pick me up, but they thought that I didn't live on that side of town with the other white children. So when the bus drivers would come or when it was the end of the day, I would always get questions like, Oh, do you need to be bussed Mm -hmm. out to the West side or to the East side? Um, And then even just within my classmates, I, I graduated, you know, top five of my class. They Mm -hmm. were so surprised. I didn't fit in with the black kids because I was too white and I didn't fit in with the white kids because they thought I was a threat. So it was a constant, like, where do I fit in? Where do I belong? Like, I I want to, you know, be seen as I'm smart and I'm not a troublemaker, but I also want sure. to fit in with the black kids. But, oh, you talk, you talk different. You talk too proper. Absolutely. I think, I think a lot of black, black people grow up with that same sort of dichotomy of, of sort of living separate lives and trying to fit into different groups. Mm-hmm. And I think... When I was growing up, I can only speak for myself. When I was growing up, um, nobody wanted to be labeled the G word, ghetto. Like, you didn't want to be called ghetto. There was such Mm. a stigma attached to being called ghetto. Um, And you knew that if you were too black amongst your white friends, they would call you ghetto. Maybe not to your face, but it certainly would be thrown Mm -hmm. around that that person is ghetto. Like, if you spoke with slang or if you dressed a certain way or if you listened to certain music, you could be labeled ghetto. Um, and that's something that that's a term that that goes way back and has been used for derogatory terms and to sort of uh, keep black people oppressed in a certain way by using that language, um, but became part of like daily vernacular for a lot of people, too. Right. So, yeah, that was uh, code switching was mm-hmm. was a big part of, of my life when I was growing up. And, and to be honest, it still is sometimes. It still is. It still, still is. Yeah. I still code it switch. Still um, there's the professionals, the f- professional speaking me. And then there's me when I'm with my friends that, that speaks differently. Mm-hmm. There's me when, when I'm with my family that might speak even differently. Um, right. But I think it's becoming more accepted to be your authentic self in some of the spaces that we specifically work in. Um, and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that we have yeah. that opportunity to be in those spaces because I know not everyone has that. Not everyone has the ability to enter those spaces. Right. We're realizing now more than ever. I mean, we've always known that collectively as a people, we are mm-hmm. strong, but for so long, our strength was always buried. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think we're finding you we're finding ourselves within ourselves, if that makes sense, like we're finding community and realizing that together sure. we're stronger 
Um, and so for those that like it, fine. For those that don't, fine. Um, and it's not always that case because then, of course, there are situations that send us back. And it's just like, man, I really thought that sure. this was done. Or man, like, when are we going to be free? But overall, I think as a people, we're starting to realize we are so mm -hmm. strong and we are so resilient. Um and we're full of magic. We are. You know? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm loving the we black are girl amazing magic, black boy beings. magic. Like, oh my gosh. Like, never has it has there been a better time to be melanated. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, and it's such a beautiful thing. And it's so unfortunate that there will be people who will never want to experience yeah. that. And it's, it's, it feels like now that almost is become, becoming othering for people like that. Like you look at the yeah. the storming of the Capitol and you look at the folks who are out there um, disgracing our nation in the way that they were. That for me was a moment was like, look at this handful of people that are othering themselves from everyone else who is civilized and, you know, mm -hmm. may, may have, have racist thoughts or racist undertones, but not overtly really, um, about that but look at these people and look at look how they're behaving um right and i think not to become political um but i think we're headed in the right direction just based off of what we saw over the last four years um just that alone is a start it's not a huge step but just right removing the last four years that's a start um and i think that can help us help lead us back into a better direction like I said, there's still a ton of work to be done. Um, and I don't, Absolutely. And, and very similar to Ta-Nehisi Ta Coates, I don't know that we'll ever reach that true pinnacle of, of safety and comfortability, but I mm -hmm. think we can head in that direction. My hope is that we leave this world in a better place for our children than when we got it. Better, That's absolutely. the only goal that I have is, is to leave the world in a better place for them and for potential grandchildren and, and people down the line, the world has to be better for them. It has to, it has to be a better Absolutely. place for them to live in um, because no one deserves to live in, in times like we've experienced in our parents and our grandparents. No one deserves that. Mm -hmm. um, and Absolutely. Go ahead. And I think that's one of the things that, oh, I'm sorry. Um, for me as a new parent, I'm constantly trying to find ways to make sure my child knows what it means to experience mm -hmm. black joy, you know, because I don't know about you, um, but I have these moments where sometimes I feel guilty for, for being in a place where I just want to experience black joy because you almost, you almost get to a place where you're like, okay, there's so much of this going on in this world. Like how much can I be completely immersed? You know what I mean? And so sometimes I feel guilty, but knowing that I can't protect my child um, who is a girl, but if I ever have a son, knowing that I can't protect her or any future children, but also knowing that I want my kids to know that you can still experience black joy. Like, it is okay to be who you mm -hmm. are fully and you can still have those dreams that you want to have, not the lofty dreams of you will never experience a struggle, but that you will become somebody and whatever you want to do. And you can, you can go places, you can travel, you can do things. And I don't, from your perspective, do you ever sometimes feel like, man, I should be doing more or guilty if you choose to make sure that your kids enjoy just being kids and experiencing joy? And what does that even look like? What does that even mean? What does that even Are look you asking like? me, do I experience parent guilt or, or daddy guilt? 100%. Yes. 100%. <laughs> um, and I, I, I realize now that we're, we're speaking virtually, so you can't see me nodding my head the entire time. Um, I was agreeing <laughs> with everything that you were saying. I, I feel very similar in a, in a lot of those aspects. I also feel like 
I want to tell them that it's okay to do those things, but I also want to show them. And I can't show them until I reach that point that he talks about in his book. Like, I have to get there before I can show you how to be comfortable in that skin, how to celebrate your blackness, Mm -hmm. how to do those things. Um, And I think Stacey, Stacey, who's my partner, Stacey and I have have made intentional efforts to to celebrate that more, to to Mm -hmm. really talk about our blackness and talk about our history and, you know, buy books about activists and really talk about why we should be celebrating these things. We took them to the polls this past election and we talked about sort of the history of of voting and how we got to this place and why it's so important. Mm -hmm. And and hopefully in those moments, they understand what we're doing and the conversations that we're having with them and they can celebrate that. And when they become old enough, they can say, this is an honor to do this. Like, this is my right. I want to do this because of everyone that came before me, because of all the lives that were lost in in trying to get our vote. Um, And we want them to celebrate that. We want them to, we want them to be, to be comfortable in their skin and being black. But like I said, I have to get there first. So there's a ton of guilt in that. Mm -hmm. Um, But then there's the, the regular baked in parent guilt about, wanting to do more for them in those ways. Um, But as I get older, I realize that I can't do it unless I show them. Um, I have to live that. I have to live that experience and I have to be a model in that way for them so they can see it. So they can see that you can live comfortably. um, You can celebrate this Mm -hmm. and you can do it in a way, hopefully that you won't get harmed, that someone won't hurt you because they're going to be hurt. They're going to, experience heartache and there's going to be pain for them and we can't do anything as parents all we can do is try to support them through those moments so for me the the comfort aspect going full circle back to your initial excerpt that you read comforting them in those moments i feel like is very important even though you can't say everything is going to be okay Mm -hmm. you can't say that with certainty um i can't be me and not comfort them in those moments and not right but i completely understand where he was coming from with comfort i think he was speaking from comfort from a different aspect of i can't comfort you in this moment Mm -hmm. because this isn't okay it's not okay what just happened right so yes i i live with the the parent guilt all the time all the time (laughs) you mentioned um Mm -hmm. your partner stacy and just for just a brief moment i want um there's we don't know too much about um, his partner and um, and mm-hmm. him writing to his son, but he does mention that through meeting her and um, having a you know a child with him, she definitely was instrumental in him traveling mm-hmm. and seeing the world um, and having new experiences and um, mm-hmm. made him a better father and made him more loving and a bit softer. And I know oftentimes, um, you know, black women, we sure. we carry a lot, you know, and there's a lot of things we carry that we don't always put on display. Um, and we're very protective and very nurturing. And just for a brief moment, how has being um, married to Stacy and, and um, you know, having children, has that changed who you are of course it's changed Mm -hmm. who you are as a man but from you know obviously speaking from the black perspective um and just figuring out parenting together and and how has her approach to parenting um black children in this world in the society we live in how has that had an impact on you as a as a black man and a black father that's a really great question um because I'll say that I married a phenomenal woman. Um, A big part of the reason why um, I chose to marry her is because she's always been great with children. Um, And I always saw in her Mm -hmm. that she would be a phenomenal mother. Um, And she has so many great qualities that make her a great mother and a great wife. Uh, But one of the things I love most about her is how she's able to sort of take these moments with our children and have these very... Um, Mm -hmm. serious or heartfelt conversations and do it in such a a warm and loving way. Um, And that's, that for me is everything like seeing those moments. It's everything for me as, as a husband and as a father. 
um, knowing that I chose the right partner to raise our children, um, knowing that we think very similarly and having these very intentional conversations, uh, specifically around race and about being black. Um, before we ever had children, I think when she was pregnant with our son, um, my oldest, I think we were already reading books about raising a black son and doing research about what do, what do oh, those yeah. conversations look like? Because she came to me and she was crying and she was very sad. And she was like, I realize that we're going to be raising a black son in this country. Um, and this was after, after the Michael Brown oh. incident. Um, and she's like, I'm scared. I'm scared for my son. And this was before he wow. was ever born. Um, and she was like, I don't know how we're going to do it. I don't know how we're going to raise a black son. Um, and I sort of told her, we, we're going to draw on my experience and we're going to tell him what it's like for us. And we're going to tell him how to keep himself safe. And we're going to raise him to the best of our ability. Um, and like I said, he is yeah. the sweetest, most kind child who is a complete goof, who will make everyone laugh. Um, <laughs> and I think not to toot our own horn, but we're raising a really great kid. And our daughter as well, our three-year-old, we're sure, raising really yeah. great children um, because we have those shared values, because we have those conversations, because um, our communication together might not be great at all times, but when it comes to our children, having communication about them and what they need is, is usually pretty on point. Um, we, have, we have conversations about what they need and how we can be uh, the best parents for them. And I think that's really important for me is that she always supports me anytime I want to have a conversation or anytime I want to do something with them. She supports that. And I do the same for her and having that support on both, on both ends is really helpful when you're trying to struggle, when you're, when, when you're struggling with something, trying to figure it out. Um, and that's sort of what parenting is, is just troubleshooting. It's, it's literally putting out sure. fires and troubleshooting and trying to figure it out as you go. Um, and I think I chose a pretty good person to, to do that with, to, to go along with. Absolutely. That's amazing. Um, I want us to wrap up, but I want to read something and I want you to um, and end with telling us and telling listeners what can they learn? Um, how can they learn and how can they continue to grow in their journey um, as being allies and also um, you know, with their friends and their employees or colleagues and whatever sphere, whatever space they find themselves in, because this is such a real raw conversation and more of these conversations need to happen, but we also um, know mm -hmm. that these things take time, you know, and so starting it is great, but more people need to get on board. So what does that look like? But he said something in his book that I literally had to just sit with um, because it was just so powerful. And I, I want to read that and I want you to tell, just, you know, tell me your thoughts and what, what, what you want to leave um, listeners with. He says, I am sorry. I cannot make it. Okay. I am sorry that I cannot save you, but not that sorry. The struggle is really all I have for you because it is the only portion of this world under your control. Perhaps struggle is all we have because the God of hi history is an atheist and nothing about his world is meant to be. So you must wake up every morning knowing that no promise is unbreakable, least of all the promise of waking up at all. This is not despair. These are the preferences of the universe itself. Verbs over nouns, actions over states, struggle over hope. The birth of a better world is not ultimately up to you, though I know each day there are grown and there are grown men and women who tell you otherwise. The world needs saving precisely because of the actions of these same men and women. I am not a cynic. I love you and I love the world and I love it more with every new inch I discover. But you are a black boy and you must be responsible for your body in a way that other boys cannot know. Yeah, I think as in many of his excerpts, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, yeah. I think leaving, uh, specifically focusing on leaving him with the struggle and that being all he has to leave, that's, 
it's sort of the one constant in life is that we know there's going to be struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and you right. can try to equip someone as best as possible with the tools that we have um, to hope they can navigate those, those waters. But ultimately the struggle is going to be there. Um, and that's, it's a constant, it's a constant in all of our lives, but especially in the life of right. a black man, um, there are going to be so many barriers and so many obstacles in your way. Um, and you sort of have to learn how to navigate those and you can't teach someone how to navigate them until that moment occurs. And that's, that's part of the difficult thing about being a black father is that I can tell you my experiences and how I dealt with it. I can tell you what's recommended, but until you get into that moment and you're sort of, uh, punched in the gut for, for lack of a better term, um, that you don't know what you're going to do in that moment. You don't know how you're going to respond in that moment until something like that occurs. And I think what I, the way I perceive that is that sort of leaving him with the struggle of trying to figure it out, trying to figure out what all of that right. is going to look like, how he's going to learn how to be in his black body and be comfortable there. Um, hmm. Yeah. I think that's, that's a very interesting, interesting take on what he can leave his son. But yeah, as far as um, okay. leaving folks with with next steps or educating themselves, I think that's where I always start and that's where I always end is educating yourself, whether it be mm-hmm. reading this book that we've been right. talking about. I think that's a, a great place to be. Um, uh, attending trainings or webinars or however, the best way for you to gather information. Um, if it's a podcast, if it's a documentary, yeah. Um, read up on the history of, of black culture in America, um, sort of what mm-hmm. black people have been through, what black people have been experiencing, um, and try and do it empathetically. Try and put yourself in someone else's shoes. Try to understand why there is so much distrust between black people and law enforcement. Try to understand why there's so much distrust mm-hmm. between black people and politicians. Try to understand why there's so much distrust period between black people in our country. Um, and once you start to do that, I think people who are naturally empathetic or, or can see from other people's perspectives will understand the burden that is carried on the back of black people every day. Um, the burden of having to change yourself to fit into a space, the burden of having to, speak a certain way or act a certain way so that you feel safe and comfortable. Um, trying to, to do those things, I think, can put us in the right direction. Um, but I also think it, it means acknowledging that the struggle is real, acknowledging that the things that, right. that people of color Absolutely. are saying are not just made up or not just them playing the race card or wanting a leg up on someone else. These things are real. And if someone says that it's real, I believe you. I believe that what you're saying is real for you. Right. I know that I haven't experienced it. I know that I may never understand it, but it's real for you. And I'm going to acknowledge that and I'm going to treat it as such. And I think if we start doing that, if we see more empathy within our society, the the optimist in me is like a lot of these things might, might start to go away, might start to lessen. um, If people can see from other people's perspectives, specifically folks who are marginalized or others, um, I think they can, they can start building that bridge again. And I always, music has always meant a lot to me in my life. Um, it's always been a very important component of who I am. Um, and I'm very drawn to music. And shortly after uh, Michael Brown was shot and killed, the, the movie Selma came out about Selma, Alabama. Um, and John mm, Legend and Common yeah. made a song called Glory. Um, that won a ton of awards. It's, a, it's an incredible mm-hmm. song. I recommend listening to it. Uh, but there's it a is. line that Common says in there that has always stood out to me. It's always really resonated with me about how he chose these words so intentionally. Um, and he says, the movement is a rhythm to us. Freedom is like religion to us. Justice is just a, just juxtaposition in us. Just a, Justice yeah. for all just ain't yep. specific enough. And for me, it means that just saying justice for all, that's not specific enough because all we are not included in that. Absolutely. And when you talk about sort of the things that this country was built on from 
um, the Declaration of Independence to um, all the laws that we have in place. And when you think about all of those things, we are not included in those things. Black people are not included in the laws and decrees that this country has been built on. So we need to change that thinking. We need to we need to shift our mentality because that all is not inclusive. It's not inclusive for the LGBTQ community, people of color, people who are marginalized. Like that all is not all. That all was made for white men. Let's be honest. Right. It was it was white men when white they wrote people. that. It was for white men. And then they later brought white women into it as well. But that was not for women. That that all was not for women either. So I think we need to change our, our line of thinking when we try to to sort of look back at this country and our democracy and our flag and all of the things that we want to hold true. Just try to understand that those things aren't true for black people. Black people don't view those things the same right. as someone else may. And educate yourself on the reasons why, the reasons why we don't view those things the same way. So always start with education, end with education. Um, so you can try to understand where people of color are coming from. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Burton, for having this conversation Thank you. with I me. I appreciate and, um, the opportunity. I know that our listeners have learned a lot and just, I know that they're just going to so appreciate this um, conversation. So as always, you can find our podcast on Spotify and you can also find out more um, at ikesaht.org or um, look at us look us up on Facebook or Instagram at Indiana Coalition to End Sexual Assault. Um, we will try our best to add some resources at the end of this podcast. Thank you all for listening to our first episode. We hope you enjoyed, enjoyed it and hope that you will join us for our next episode. Take care.